Greetings old Haliburians and members of the wider Haliburi community wherever and whenever you are listening to this. This is Keith White from the class of 62 bringing you the sixth of our regular podcast series using audio material from the Haliburi archives. This episode is a second of a two-part series celebrating the life of former Deputy Principal John Neal, who passed away in March. We are featuring two edited audio extracts recorded in 1997, the year John retired. The first, from a dinner held to honour John and his wife Joan, is a toast proposed by Principal Michael Aikman. It's a little noisy, but I think well worth listening to. In early January 1974, my first sighting of John Neal was under circumstances somewhat different to that planned by my predecessor. You see, David Bradshaw had drawn up a strict set of dates and occasions at which various members of the Halebury community would meet the new man. We'd just moved into the head's house at Castlefield and I decided to try my hand on the Memorial Hall pipe organ. I was in full flight. All stops out playing my test piece, that grand arrangement that Ivan Collins would identify so strongly, of the last verse of Praise My Soul, the King of Heaven. (laughs) When the stage curtains suddenly parted and a figure emerged, demanding my name and purpose. (laughs) (laughs) Subsequently, of course, I imagine that we were both equally embarrassed here for beating Bradshaw's gun and me for being caught demonstrating my inadequacies at the console. Little Johnny Neal's childhood... (laughs) ...was spent in Caulfield South, where he attended the Caulfield South Primary School, coincidentally directly opposite where we now live. On completion of his primary schooling, John moved to Gardenvale Central School for years seven and eight. There were few metropolitan high schools in those days and Gardenvale Central was clearly closer than Hampton or Mordialic High School. His next move was to gain acceptance into Melbourne High School for years 9 to 12 and he remembers it as a nerve-wracking experience being one among some 1,000 young hopefuls sitting the entrance test. Having matriculated, John started as a trainee primary teacher, you may not realise it, with the education department, but only for two weeks. (laughs) He finished not because he couldn't hack it, but rather because he gained a scholarship to the newly formed Melbourne University Secondary Teachers College. The scholarship not only covered his university fees, which were quite substantial in those days, but paid a, a living allowance as well. For all I know, we may have passed each other in the chemistry school, or as we queued up each fortnight outside the secondary teachers' portable classrooms in the university rotation garden, to collect our pay, but he was two years ahead of me, and I have no recollection of it. At the end of the dip ed year, each year group was summoned to the public lecture theatre in the old arts building for a final assembly, during which first appointments were publicly announced. Perhaps not surprisingly, most first appointments were to country schools, and I recall at Swift's Creek on the way to Omeo, and wait for a Merbu North. <laughs> In the Strasakis were two schools to be avoided at all costs. Anyway, John had no desire to go to the country, and being the canny fellow that he is, applied for a metropolitan technical school in the almost sure knowledge that such were their reputation, he was almost certain to be successful. And he was. 
The three technical schools with the worst reputations were Collingwood, Richmond, and South Melbourne. He was appointed to South Melbourne Tech, which drew many of its boys from Port Melbourne, you understand, <laughs> and which was visited by the police on an almost daily basis, just catching up on the lads' extracurricular activities. John had already proved his academic ability, now he was to learn how to deal with bad, indeed revolting boys, an essential quality for any future vice principal. Incidentally, he recalls teaching one Bobby Skilton, trade mathematics at that time. I'm not sure whether he was revolting or just bad. It was a baptism by fire and he emerged shaken but triumphant, to the cost, I might say, of boys who were to cross his path in later years. Among other things, he developed a nose for trouble and an ability to be one step ahead of any wrongdoer. At the end of John's third year at South Melbourne, David Bradshaw was looking for a teacher of mathematics as Alan Palfrey's offsider and phoned John quite out of the blue. Indeed, and you can't imagine this happening really, indeed such was his determination to secure the services of this fine young teacher, he even asked if he might come round to John's house to discuss the matter further and arrive within minutes. Another new member of staff that year was young Morris Brown. Now, Halebury was not exactly a great school then. Many would have known that the great Olympic swimmer John Marshall was still a student at Halebury, but not much of the school itself. I joined the staff at Scotch in 1960 and learned that the Scotch head of preparatory school, David Bradshaw, was now headmaster at Halebury, and that young masters at Scotch like Ivan Collins were soon to follow him. But that was about it. The science department at Halebury was in a parlour state and in 1960 John Neal was asked to take over as head of science, a position he held for 23 years and during which he completely revitalised the department. In fact, when I arrived at Halebury I was amazed at the size of his budget which seemed to totally eclipse anything else. <laughs> Clearly his powers of persuasion were another of his great strengths. Prior to the move to Keysborough, John and his family were sent to the UK to investigate modern methods of teaching and resourcing the sciences, and this was reflected in the design and equipping of the new laboratories at Keysborough. Outside the classroom, John was keen on his sports and was sometime master in charge of tennis and coach of the second eleven. Now, you may not know that I was once a demon bowler until year seven when they made me bowl over on. <laughs> and since then, cricket really hasn't been my bag. And I remember in 1974, trying to do the headmasterly thing and going out to the nets to show an interest. It was a terrifying experience as the balls were belted around. And it was then that I noted one John Neal complete with crash helmet. <laughs> This, I might say, long before helmets became part of essential batsman's gear. It's a well-worn story, I know, but it demonstrates yet two more of his qualities of initiative and inventiveness. In addition to being housemaster of Dickinson House, John, with Joan, Andrew and Douglas, had two tours of duty in the boarding house at South Road. One in the early days, when he and Joan were fairly recently married, and the other in 1973. John may have been appointed boarding house master, but in doing so, 
Joan became the border's mum and of necessity became vitally involved with the day-to-day -day operation of the boarding house. While I was not about in those days, I can well imagine that Joan brought to her role that charm, dignity and practicality with which she has supported John throughout his career. It has also been suggested to me that she shared John's understanding of boys and his ability to be one jump ahead. In 1983, I invited John Neal to be my deputy, and so began 14 years, during which I have ever been grateful to him for his support and leadership. Around about 1988, John became seriously ill. His recuperation was understandably slow, and particularly in the early days, I really wondered if he would ever be able to return to work. I guess it must have been all of 12 months before we started to see the old John Neal but with characteristic determination and perseverance, he regained his health and became just as effective as he had been in days of yore. Since then, I've always thought of John's recovery as a modern-day medical miracle. The Vice-Principal of Haler reacts for the principal in his absence, and I know how much the College Council have valued their closer contact with John during my times of leave, and have developed a deep appreciation for his advice and of his leadership skills. The Vice-Principal is also responsible for the day-to-day -day running of the senior school. I've already mentioned John's undoubted ability in dealing with difficult boys, and their difficult parents too, for that matter. <laughs> to that I add that he has been both an outstanding teacher and administrator. His ability to arrange staffing and timetables is legend, as is his ability to crystallise arguments, to get to the nub of any problem, and to quickly arrive at the appropriate solution. He's been friend and counsellor to many boys, parents and staff. After 40 years, he really understands what Halebury and its community are all about and has been invaluable in ensuring that those traditions and standards which are the essential strengths of the school have been preserved. Finally, I cannot speak too enthusiastically about his support to me. Over the past 14 years, we've enjoyed a very close working relationship. Never a school day has passed without numerous consultations between us. How will I function without his ever-ready advice and support? Only time will tell. Joan and John, we are heavily in your debt. We thank you for your enormous contribution over the past 40 years. We wish you every happiness in what we hope will be the many years that lie ahead. So, will you all be upstanding as we drink the health of Joan and John? John and Joan Neal. Hmm. A very witty and thoughtful encapsulation of the history and character of one of Halebury's great teachers and administrators. I noted with great interest that the prime role of the Deputy Principal in those days, only 20 years or so ago, seem to be dealing with so-called bad boys. Our second extract is fittingly from the man himself, John Neal, speaking at Founders Day in 1997 in his last days as Deputy Principal. As you know, he has decided to retire at the end of this month, but with such a wealth of knowledge of the school over so many years, it seemed most appropriate that he should be our guest of honour and speak to us this morning. Mr Neal.
Brakeman, Mr Cox, distinguished guests, members of the school. What do we do to celebrate birthdays? Well, I suppose that depends on our age. As youngsters, we're more concerned with presents and parties. As we get older, probably more concerned with the parties. By the time we turn 18, we get special rights. At 40, we probably start to worry. At my age, we'll probably just be glad to make it for another year. But as a school, we celebrated in 1992 our centenary, and we had a years-long celebration. And we look back at the traditions of the school over that period. Today, we look at our 105th birthday and see what we should make of that. Now, Founders Day was first held back in 1963 or 4. It doesn't go back much longer than uh, 30 odd years. The school historian can't make up his mind which year it started in, and I certainly can't remember. But it arose as a response by the then headmaster to the possible fragmentation that might occur with the opening of this property in 1963. At that stage, boys attended Keysborough for the whole of their year eight, and most of them returned to Brighton to complete years nine to 12, while a small school made up of local boys from this part of the world was conducted for year seven, then year nine, and progressively through to year 12. And a certain number of policies were established to try and make sure this rather diverse school still kept a view of itself as being one entity, not two separate places. And Founders Day was one of those initiatives. The day was held in March and it was marked by an assembly of the whole school in the quadrangle at Brighton. Parents, old boys and friends were invited. A guest of honour was invited to address the assembly and the theme that was being established was the debt that was owed by the school to the founders. Mr Bradshaw included as founders all of those who'd made a contribution, however great or small, to the well-being, the development or the continuance of the school. At that time, the day also featured things that we would now imagine happened on open days. Displays of schoolwork, of extracurricular work, and various sporting matches between students and parents and old boys. And I have rather vivid memories of one of those open days, or one of those Founders Days, when in order to try and provide some spectacular demonstration in the chemistry section, I scaled up what was a fairly simple experiment by about 10 or 12 times and suddenly found that the chemistry lab, which in fact is where the uh, common room at uh, Brighton is today and the rooms around it were filled with smoke and uh, rather nasty fumes and quite a lot of flames. And my embarrassment was even compounded when 15 or 20 minutes later a fire truck rolled up. We today have kept the assembly but we don't have a whole day's celebration. And this brings us to look at the notion of the foundation of the school. And that's a fairly complex issue, but it's certainly worthwhile to think just about how a school has grown over time from very humble beginnings to the significant position it holds today. Schools are not just what they are today by accident or by chance. This school has developed because of the vision, persistence and persuasion of many individuals. We'll let you have one example. When I was interviewed by Mr Bradshaw back in 1956, he was completing his third year as headmaster. 
and it was quite clear that he viewed the school that he had taken on to be one that today we would describe as being a laid-back operation. He had come with a reputation for efficiency in administration, tight discipline, and he actively pursued traditional Scottish Presbyterian values. And the school at that time did not have a great academic tradition. The one thing that Mr Bradshaw was determined to do was to build one, and he recruited staff with this as a prime objective. Now such traditions do not build overnight. At that time, the final exam, known as the matriculation exam, was conducted by the University of Melbourne. Just so that you understand the system, students took five subjects, fully assessed by external examinations of three hours duration, and in some subjects there were two three-hour papers. The results were reported as first-class honours, 80% or more, second-class honours, 70% or more, pass 50% or more, fail less than 50. And that was for all subjects except English, which was compulsory and was simply marked as pass or fail so that a top result would have been a student who received four first-class honours. And when the academic boards were set up initially, that was the requirement. Of course, we've changed that requirement over the years as the nature of the Year 12 assessment has changed. But in 1955, the first Halebury boy to ever get four first-class honours appeared. And when I arrived at the school, he was somewhat of a legend, first boy at Halebury ever to do that. If you look on the board, you'll see the name R.W. Home. He went on to teach at the school. He went on to become a member of the school council. Uh, but more importantly, he went on to complete a PhD and became Professor of History and Philosophy of Science at Melbourne University and was for some time Dean of Arts. At that stage, he was a shining light with not much else to support him give you some idea, the following year, the ducks of the school had three second-class honours, so that life at the top academically was not uniformly good. It was not till 1959 that another boy got four first-class honours, and then another one in 61, two in 62, two in 63, and through the 60s the number grew till in 1968 there were 11 who could get four first-class honours. And it's interesting to note that at that time there were a system of scholarships state government scholarships which went to the 40 top students in the state. In 1968, six Halebury boys were amongst that list. And from that point on, we could say that the academic tradition, which is so important to us and is so important to your parents, was established and in fact has been built on and kept. And you can go to other sections of the life of the school where you can see that tradition has built over time. I don't want to go into all the detail, but you can look at the sporting situation as we joined the APS you can look at the development of music and drama. But certainly foundations need active encouragement. You certainly need someone or a group of people who will provide the environment, the facilities, the staff, the expertise. But as well as that, you need time. Time for boys to understand and to make use of what is offered. The important thing for you to realise is that the opportunities that you have are very extensive. They're not limited to what you get in the classroom. But those opportunities exist because of the efforts of many, many people who have gone to build that foundation. And it's important that we work hard to maintain what has been built, and if we can ourselves, to build on it. Now the outside world's a hard one, and it's probably getting harder. And once you leave here, whether it be to university, TAFE, or to work, you're going to need an opportunity to make use of your talents in whatever field they lie. 
One of the ways in which opportunities arise is through the feeling by potential sponsors or employees that boys who come from Halebury have attributes that suggest that they are young men worth taking on. In other words, it's the reputation of the school through the performance in a huge variety of walks of life of those who have passed through it that will eventually help create the opportunity for you to get started. Once you've started, you're very much on your own. But certainly you have a responsibility to yourself, not only to ensure that you perform well, but it is in your interest to show an interest in the school and to do what you can to assist its progress when you've left it. If this school continues to enjoy a high reputation in the wider community, then those who are its products will have increased opportunities. If its reputation were to shrink, then the opportunities for all of those who passed through it would also shrink. In a perfect world, those who have gained by the efforts of others would make an effort to do likewise for those who are to follow. But even if you can't behave as though the world is perfect, there's a very sound pragmatic reason why you should see yourself as a founder. There are many thousands of men who have passed through this school over 105 years. Although I've only known it for 40 years, many of those that I've seen and talked are well into their working lives. It's a sobering thought for me that those that I taught as year seven and eight boys in the late 50s are now men in their mid-50s themselves. The reputation of this school, as I've said, is tied to the successes in the wider community of those who have passed through it. From time to time, we hear about the successes of old boys. And I'm amazed at the variety of fields, academic, education, medicine, business, the arts, in which Halebury students or Halebury old boys have and are making their mark. One of the most gratifying things that a teacher can have is to hear about the success of boys who at school were not at the top of the academic tree and who did not feature as a star in any particular area, but who were triers and made the most of the abilities that they had. There are many such stories as that, and I don't want to quote names, but I do want to give you just one example. During last year, there were Siamese twins born in Papua New Guinea. It was a large media coverage as those twins were brought to Melbourne, cared for, successfully separated, and eventually went home. Some of you may have seen some of the news coverage where the neonatalist, that is the doctor who was responsible for the health of the babies before the operation to separate them and immediately after, was the spokesman for the team. And I recognised him one night as a boy who 30 years ago or so ago had sat in my chemistry class. I found out later that he has created for himself a very strong reputation worldwide as a doctor dealing with very young babies. He has invented and developed significant equipment to help save their lives. He holds a very senior position in the Royal Children's Hospital. At school, he was a small, jovial boy who was involved in his studies, but certainly involved in a lot of things around the school. He did not get onto the honours board. I think he ended up with a first-class honour and some seconds. He desperately wanted to get to medicine, but was disappointed because they wouldn't take him with his academic result. So he went off to do science at Melbourne and eventually persevered because he wanted to be in medicine and found a way in. 30 years later, we're seeing his success. Not everybody will have their name on the honours board at the end of their year, but there will be many, many more success stories. The world you're going to go in is going to be constantly changing and you're going to have to adapt to it. And much of what you learn today and in your tertiary course 
will soon become totally redundant. However, the things that are going to endure are your personal values and attitudes. And it's the attitudes that you take, such as persistence, not giving up, integrity. Those things are what will be the cornerstone of your future. In finishing, I would like to congratulate all of those who are going to be installed as school officers and say to all of you that the school will function well only if you support your leaders. It is not a one-way exchange. And finally, could I thank the principal for the invitation to speak to you today and wish you well for the rest of the year. Inspiring stuff and a great lesson to the rising generation from a great Haliburian. Well, that's it for this sixth From the Archives podcast. The next episode should be coming your way in June. If you've got a comment to make or a story you'd like to tell, please get in touch. My home email, redhillsouth at icloud.com, all lowercase. This is Keith White signing off from the Archives, Series 1, Episode 6, May 2019. Thanks for listening.